It's great to be back in Australia. Yesterday, uh, Violetta and I boarded the long flight from Los Angeles to Sydney. And uh, shortly after getting off the, the plane, as we got onto the jetway, I knew that I was home when I heard a lady say, get in the back of the lawn. Back of the lawn. She wasn't speaking to me. She was speaking to somebody. But just hearing that, get in the back of the lawn, I was like, I'm home. I'm home. And so it's, it's good to be home. It was a, an amazing trip. But in many ways, it was kind of a difficult trip. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. We started off by going to Florida, and the Arise Intensive took place there. I was with Ty Gibson, and we had an amazing time. 250 registrants in Orlando, Florida. Uh, from then, I went and spent some time with a good friend of mine, Pastor Nathan Renner, who in many ways is a mentor to me. He's probably oh, one of my best three or four friends on the face of the earth. and uh, So that was great. We spent some time together and uh, just sort of... Eastern Sierras, which is my favorite place in the United States, maybe my favorite place in the world, just geographically on the eastern side of the Sierras there, which is where Yosemite's located. Um, then from there, went to visit my family. My mom and my dad have historically lived in Wyoming or Colorado, in and around that area, but they have migrated south to Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, if you've ever been to Phoenix, you might wonder, why would anyone live here? Uh, it's hot, and it's dry, and it's flat, and I suppose in its own way, it's, it's beautiful as well. It is beautiful. And so we went and visited my, my parents, and, and this is going to sort of all give you a feel for how we arrived at the sermon this morning. I woke up early this morning because, and this doesn't happen very often, very often the, the challenge that I face when it comes to preach or to present is I have too much that I want to say. I have too many sermons I want to preach. I have too many series I want to go through. I, I'm always like, no, not that, not that, not that, not that. But in preparation for coming back and the next series that we're going to be embarking upon, I've just been kind of, I don't want to say at a dry, but it, it's been, it's kind of felt that way. I often, in ways that are, you know, unusual and in God's own idiosyncratic ways, he just sort of reveals to me what the new sermon's going to be, what the new series is going to be. And I've just been waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, just knowing that it's going to drop, it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened. And I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, maybe it's just because I've been busy and I've been distracted. And so even as late as the plane ride over, I had my Bible there and I had purpose in my heart. I wasn't going to watch any stupid movies and I didn't watch any stupid movies. And just kind of waiting on the Lord, waiting for him to come through and seeing what it was going to be and, and still nothing. Now, I should say that in the back of my mind over the course of this last year, I've been really excited about a longer series on marriage and a series I'm really excited uh, about on the epistles of Paul, particularly Galatians and Ephesians and some others. Don't know what that is, but sounds like somebody's... Oh, okay. All right, thanks, guys. Anyway, a series on Galatians and then also a series that I'm pretty excited about on suffering. But the thing is, is that... All of that's just kind of, it just feels, I just didn't feel like I was ready for it. And uh, so I woke up very early this morning, upside down from jet lag, as you might imagine, and four o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, Lord, you're, you're going to have to come through. You're going to have to deliver here. And uh, I, had, I had thought that we would really kickstart a new series, maybe something on Ephesians or Galatians, a four or a five-part series. But as I began to sort of pour myself into it early this morning, which is unusual for me, I don't like to do that. I'm not a wait till late Friday or early Saturday and try to come up with a sermon. And so I literally was on the, the very verge 
of standing up and saying, um, I have nothing, but we're going to pray, and, uh, you know, just consider yourselves lucky because you're going to get out early. And some of you are thinking, oh, man, the Lord had to come through. Uh, And so then I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out of sermon preparation mode, and I'm going to sort of transition here, and I'm just going to read, I'm just going to open the Bible and read. And uh, God can work in his wonderful ways. You know, the Galatians thing wasn't really coming together. The Ephesians thing wasn't really coming together. And I wasn't sure I wanted that to be the next series anyway. Still not yet sure what we'll be preaching on next Sabbath. But it's going to be the beginning of a series. Um, So I just opened the Bible and just started reading. And uh, as is often the case with me, uh, when I just open the Bible and I'm looking for a word from the Lord, I generally turn to the Psalms. That's just where I go. That's like my magnetic north. That's, that's the place that I go. I just open one of the Psalms and I start reading. And in the case of this morning, at about 5 o'clock this morning, I open to Psalm 73. So why don't you join me there if you would. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And before I get right into Psalm 73, we're going to go right through this beautiful Psalm today. Uh, in its entirety, all sort of 20 eight verses. Before we do that, I want to set up a little bit more here. Um, I wrote a few notes here just so I wouldn't forget any of this. Uh, I mentioned that when I was with my good friend Nathan, we were uh, on the eastern side of the Sierras. One of the things that we were doing was rock climbing, and the other thing we were doing was we were doing a little bit of fishing. And uh, I've been a fly fisherman for much of my life, absolutely love it. But a fascinating thing had sort of happened late last year and er, early last year in the year before, and that was that two of my, probably my best two fishing friends in the world, with the exception of Nathan, so I have really three fishing buddies, um, two of them died. Uh, Martin Simpson passed away the year before, uh, late in November, and then, of course, David North, one of our own church members here, died in July of last year. And so uh, it was a weird thing to be back fishing, doing this activity that uh, was so bound up in terms of the memories that I had and the love that I had for it with people that are just not here. And uh, Nathan, who I was with, had been with me on fishing trips with Martin, and he had met David before. And and it was just just one of those moments where you're just sort of remembering and, and the sort of impermanence of life and the frailty and fragility of life was just sort of right in front of me. Well, when we traveled from there, I went and spent time, as I mentioned, with my parents. And just about a day before I arrived to visit my my dad, who's 76 years old, his brother, uh, my uncle, Uncle Odie, passed away and died. And my brother was, my dad, excuse me, was one of three brothers, and his two older brothers have now died. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do the math there. If you have three brothers and the two older have passed away, one just a few days ago, uh, you know, my dad's next in line. It's going to happen, you know. So I'm there hanging out with my 76-year-old father, and uh, it was great. My brother flew down, so we were just just having a great time with dad. But all the while, you're, you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, man, I'm 46 years old. My dad is 76 years old. Even though when I see him, he still doesn't look like an old man to me. I see him as kind of a 40-year-old man. It's weird how that is. And uh, then my mom, as some of you might know, my mother has Parkinson's disease. She has for years. And you can, this trip, perhaps more than any recent trip, you could see the advances that the disease is making on her life. And just seeing your mom frail and, and, you know, shaking uncontrollably, not able to write, no longer able to drive, difficulty eating, and sort of all of that. So here's my, you know, aging father and my, my diseased mother. 
Still, you know, happy as can be, and, and I didn't spend any time talking much about these things. We did spend some time talking about the passing of my dad's brother, Odie. Um, at about this time, if you've kept up with the news in America at all, there was a shooting in a synagogue in the United States of America, something uh, almost a dozen people lost their lives there. And then just on the flight here, in fact, in the Los Angeles airport, I called up a friend, uh, Greg King, Greg and Sarah, who you met um, a few weeks ago when we did the uh, interview with them. Uh, Greg has gone back to the United States of America, and he was back, you know, sort of getting his, you know, keeping his business going, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when I called him up just to sort of share and have a word of conversation, he informed me that one of his close friends, maybe his closest friend in America, and one of his business partners, who I think is about my age, maybe 50, um, is that right? I'm looking for about 50 years old, um, was diagnosed with a terrible brain tumor, terminal brain tumor. And uh, they got him immediately into um, surgery. Is that right? Am I getting this right, Sarah? So his wife is a very close friend of Sarah's, and it's, as I understand it, it's, it's terminal, right? He had, a, he had a, uh, 90% of the tumor removed, the remaining 10% was inoperable, but these, the tumor that he has, and I'm not a medical doctor, but is the kind that even if you get all of it, it just comes back. So he's on a very short, um, yeah, very short timetable. So, so there's been all of this sort of, all of these things have been happening over the last two weeks, and especially the last week. And, and then let me just say one more thing about that. Um, as many of you know, I'm a very avid rock climber. I love rock climbing. And in addition to doing the fly fishing that we were doing there in the Eastern Sierras, we also spent a lot of time rock climbing. And uh, a movie was just released this year, in fact, has just come out, that features a fellow by the name of Alex Honnold. I've actually talked about him in one of my sermons before. Alex Honnold is uh, a climber. Uh, climbs mostly in and around California, Yosemite, and just last year, 2017, yep, he free soloed El Capitan, and they made a National Geographic movie about it called Free Solo. I went and watched the movie in Florida. It was so mind-blowingly good that I went and saw it a second time with my dad and my brother. And I suppose if you're not a rock climber, you look at that and you think, wow, that's really dangerous, you know, that's He's 1,000 feet, he's 2,000 feet, he's 3,000 feet off the ground. He, if he falls, you know, there's no ropes. He's a free soloist. Not always, but often. If he falls, he's, he's going to die. But as a rock climber, as somebody who's been climbing since I was in my late teens, I am fully aware of what he's doing and having done some soloing myself, not a lot of it, none of it anymore. Um, I, I, I just, it was fascinating to, to see Alex there on this route called Freerider, which is uh, one of the longer routes right up the, the center of El Capitan, you know, just, just hanging by his, just by his strength and his skill and, and just the smallest little bits of, you know, purchase on the rock, separating him. And, and, and in the course of the, the, the interview and the movie, he's talking about death and, and how we're all going to die. And, and this just brought to my mind yet again just the impermanence of life, the fragility of life, the frailty of life. And so it's been this kind of flood, and I didn't even really understand it. It's not like I was crying. I wasn't spending a lot of time sort of uh, being really emotional about it. But this morning when I opened up Scripture and I turned to Psalm 73, it, it all came together that the shooting and my uncle's passing and my mother's advancing Parkinson's and watching, you know, Alex Honnold uh, scale uh, El Capitan without ropes, it all dawned on me that at some level, subconsciously and emotionally, I've been 
becoming increasingly aware of my own fragility. I mean, any one of us in this room is just one doctor's visit away, one positive test away from our own impermanence. And so Psalm 73 hit me very hard, and I can't wait to sort of unpack that. I want to talk to you today about what might be called holy doubt. Holy doubt, Psalm 73. We sometimes think of faith as being holy and belief as being holy and confidence as being holy. I want to talk to you today from my heart about holy doubt. I want to begin by just making several statements that you might say, yeah, yeah, you might intellectually assent to the statements, but I just want to, I just want to reaffirm the reality of this today by letting you know that you have scriptural grounds and a scriptural basis to ask hard questions. Really hard questions. It, it's okay to ask hard questions. And, and not only to ask hard questions, I want you to feel this morning, for those of you that are Bible-believing Christians and many of you Seventh-day Adventist Christians, I just want to give you permission today to not know all the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know, and I'm confused by that. And it's okay to be confused. And it's even okay to be angry. When I see Parkinson's, a disease, having its way with my mother and the picture that I have in my mind of my mom is not what I see in front of me here, I, I feel a well of frustration and of anger up inside of me. It's okay to ask the questions and to say, I don't know why this is happening, and even at times to be angry. And you might be saying, wait a minute, David, who are you to give us permission who are you to say that it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be confused, and it's okay to not know all the answers? Well, I want to say this, that God is big enough and secure enough to enshrine wrestling and even doubt in Holy Scripture itself. The Bible is filled with passages in the Psalms and in the prophets and even to some degree in the New Testament with people that wrestled with doubt and they wrestled with God in deep, even angry frustration. So if God is willing enough and comfortable enough to put people crying out to God, sometimes in, in really straightforward language, saying things like, God, are you, are you deaf that you can't hear my prayer? Are, are you blind that you can't see the situation that I'm in? If God is comfortable enshrining this kind of protest in Scripture itself, I am certain that you are not going to be able to say anything that is going to make God say, whoa, that was a little too much. That was a little too offside. Is there such a thing as holy doubt? I believe that Psalm 73 encapsulates a kind of holy doubt. And I want to show you where I think holy doubt goes. Any conversation about doubt and any conversation about faith are going to necessarily, are going to necessitate that we talk about the other. If we're talking about faith, we're going to have to talk about doubt and how faith is inherently prone to doubt and vice versa. Right? Doubt, this idea of, of, of holy doubt is, is bound up with this idea of faith. And I want to say right at the outset here that faith does not offer or require absolute certainty about all things. I consider, my man, I consider myself a man of faith, and I look out here and I see a lot of faces that I recognize, a lot of people that I know and love. I would consider you to be men and women of faith. And I just want you to know this morning, not only do you have scriptural permission to be upset or to be angry or to be confused or to be ignorant... You also have permission to not know everything and, and it's okay to say, you know what, I'm confused and I'm upset and I don't know things, even though I'm a man of faith or a woman of faith. Because faith is a journey with God, but faith is also a journey toward God. And I'm going to pick that up right at the end. 
Faith is a journey with and toward God. Several years ago, I read a book by one of my favorite theologians, Gregory Boyd. The book is titled, Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty. And I went back in the series that we preached uh, at Lightbearers Camp Meeting this year on the Minor Prophets. I went back and reminded myself of some of the things that Boyd says about the nature of faith, the nature of doubt, the nature of certainty. And I just want to remind you uh, just let you know, remind myself, of one of the concepts that he sort of addresses there in this interplay of faith and doubt and certainty. Boyd says, my re-examination of the biblical concept of faith led me to the conclusion that the concept of faith that equates strength with certainty and that views doubt as an enemy is in fact significantly different from the biblical model. Okay, Mr. Boyd, continue. He says, while the certainty-seeking model of faith is psychological in nature, the biblical concept of faith, he says, is covenantal in nature. He continues, last slide here from Boyd, that is, while the former is focused on a person's mental state, I am certain that I know why this is happening. I am certain that I know God is there and that he's good. Boyd says the latter idea of faith, a covenantal view of faith, is focused on how a person demonstrates a faith commitment by how they live. Boyd says you don't have to know everything. You are, you are well within the domain and the parameters of biblical faith to be rattled, to be confused, to be frustrated, and even to struggle. So I want to go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 documents Asaph's doubts about the faithfulness and even the reality of God. You've got Psalm 73 open there. Psalm 73, we often think of the Psalms as having been written by David. And it is true that the lion's share of Psalms were written by David, the vast majority of them. Um, but there are 12 Psalms that were written by a fellow named Asaph. Now there are three people in the Bible named Asaph. And almost certainly the Asaph that's responsible for the writing of the Psalms in Scripture was a Levitical priest, the son of Berechiah. Right? So this is a man who is a Jew, but he's not just a Jew. He's a priest. He's, he's a Levite. And he is someone who was familiar with the inner workings of the Hebrew sanctuary. He was a man of God, just to say it really simple. And in Psalm 73, you have one of 11 psalms in a row that are all a psalm of Asaph, a psalm of Asaph, a psalm of Asaph. And if you go back to Psalm 50, is the 12th son of Asaph or Psalm of Asaph, excuse me. And what I want to do is I'm going to start by just reading the psalm through. And I don't know if you have the same vibe that I get when I read the psalms, but sometimes you read the psalms and you're like, same, same. Just sounds same, same, right? And, and God is good and God is to be praised. But one of, one of the things I love about the psalms is if you're a lazy reader of the psalms, you miss it. If you read the Psalms lazily or if you read the Psalms in a perfunctory or a cursory manner, you miss what's going on. And I'll be honest, this morning when I opened up Scripture and started reading through Psalm 73, I missed it. I got a few things. There was a little bit in there, you know, enough devotional uh, fodder to sort of face the day, but I missed the thing. So I went back and I read it again. I often challenge myself with the reading of passages of Scripture, especially the Psalms, to say, David, I think you missed something. There must be something more there. There must be something deeper there. And uh, so this morning I want to share with you what God shared with me in Psalm 73. Let's read it through in its entirety, all 28 verses. Asaph writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, notice this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as mere fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was like a a brute animal, a beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Now there's a lot in there. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And I'll be honest, in my first reading this morning, I I missed it. I got, I got a few points. It's good to be near you and, and, and you'll take me into glory. I got enough to sort of walk through the day and feel like, yes, I've spent time with Jesus. But as I went back over it, back over it again, challenging myself as I'm challenging you in Scripture, read over it again and again and again until you have a settled sense that you've gotten the point of the original author. What was he trying to say? And why did he say it in the way that he said it? Again, Psalm 73 documents Asaph's doubts about the faithfulness and even the reality of God. You you can't miss because he tells us, I was deeply troubled. Now, we don't know here much about what the source of Asaph's concern and consternation and trouble was. But there's a hint that it could have been some kind of a personal sickness. Perhaps a disease not unlike my own mother's Parkinson. Something, something has happened to Asaph that, that doesn't accord with his view of how things are supposed to work when you're a man of God, when you're a person of God, when you're a follower of God. The hints are found right in the text itself. In verse 14, All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Sounds like my body is hurting and, and I'm, I'm receiving new. Every day the pain grows worse and the disease continues. It advances. At the end of the psalm, Psalm 73 verse 26, another indication that it could be a physical, a personal physical ailment to Asaph that caused him to wonder aloud and, and to raise his complaint against God. My flesh and my heart may fail. 
says, man, my body is wearing down and, and I'm hurting and there's, there's pain in my bones and I'm very upset. We cannot say definitively that this is the cause of Asaph's frustration and his concern, but there's sufficient textual indicator to say his, he's breaking down. Maybe he's aging or maybe he has a, 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 an advanced disease. Something has happened. Right? Whether it's pain of mind or pain of body, he's crying out to God and saying something is wrong here. And it doesn't accord with the very first verse, which is a kind of formulaic way of understanding how faith works, how God works, and how the covenant works. And Asaph, he's, he's not uh, ashamed to just put his cards right out on the table and tell us how he believes the universe is supposed to work, how things are supposed to happen. Because frankly, there's probably most of us in this room that would agree would agree with this basic idea. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Would anybody say amen to that? Yeah, God is good. God is good to those, to those that are his people. God is good to the descendants of Abraham. God is good to the church. God is good to those that prioritize him. And there's a certain formulaic simplicity in this. If you are good, you'll be treated good. If, if, you, if you act in the right way, God will take care of you. Surely God is good to Israel, but, but this simplistic formulaic way of the way that the universe is supposed to work is not according with what Asaph is feeling in his body and in his bones, perhaps, but certainly with what he's seeing around him. Because it looks like people who are not good and who are not in covenant relationship with God are actually prospering. And if, in fact, Asaph is speaking autobiographically and his body is wasting away under disease prematurely, he's basically saying to God, what gives? Why me? Why this? Why now what? And so he cries out, doubting God's covenantal faithfulness. And even, if you read between the text, he's doubting even God's reality and existence. Psalm chapter 1 verse 3 introduces us to this kind of simple formulaic way that the world is supposed to work when you're a follower of God, when you're a Christian, when you're an Israelite as Asaph was. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. If you have a business venture, you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to prosper. You don't get in car accidents and your children aren't killed by drunk drivers. You don't get early onset Parkinson's. You're a follower of Jesus. Whatever you do prospers. And Asaph introduces Psalm 73 with the same kind of formulaic idea. Hey, when we do good, God does good to us. Job is a book that I don't have to tell you has a lot of these same themes, these same elements of if God is so good, then why is this happening? Why to me and why now and why this way? Job 13 verses 23 and 24. How many wrongs and sins have I committed, Job asks God. Show me my offense and my sin. There's the formula. If I live righteously, if I live in covenantal faithfulness to God, I will prosper. If something bad has happened, I'm being punished. I'm being called to account. And so Job calls out very much in Asaph-like fashion, okay, bad things have happened to me. I've done something to deserve this. Show me what I've done wrong. Show me my transgression. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy, he cries out. Earlier in the same book of Job, Job says, I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Because in Job's mind, as with Asaph, and I'm suggesting with many of us here today, if something bad has happened, it must be a punishment or at least a consequence. There's got to be a reason. Because good stuff happens to good people and, and bad stuff's supposed to happen to people that don't value God. It's very easy. It's very simple. It's very formulaic. 
Job 10 continues. Job asks very pointedly, very, very uh, frankly, honestly, does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Man, that sounds like Psalm 73. That sounds like Psalm 73. Here I am, your faithful servant. Here I am trying to live and do what's right and bad stuff happens to me. My house is taken away. My children are taken away. My wealth is taken away. And yet there are others who are not in covenantal faithfulness to you, who are not following you, who are not your sons and daughters, and you seem to be smiling upon the plans of the wicked. This is not merely an Old Testament, this formulaic phenomenon is not merely Old Testament. We find it implicit in the New Testament in passages like John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because clearly somebody has done something wrong here. Who sinned? Is it this man's sin? Is that why he's blind? Or perhaps it's the sin of his parents. Who can tell me? Who can tell me? What's the first word of Jesus' answer? The word is neither. Ah. Just just let the complexity, but also the beauty of that soak into your soul. The disciples had a very simple, very Jewish, very Asaphian, if I can invent a word here on the, on the spur of the moment. They had, a, they had a very simple way of viewing reality. If I do good, if, if I'm a tree planted by the rivers of water, if I'm an Israelite, if I'm a church member, if I'm a man of God, if I'm returning tithe, if I'm a woman of God, good stuff happens. And if I'm not, if I'm on the other end of the spectrum, if something bad has happened, it's because I've done something wrong, I'm being punished, this is a consequence of a choice that I have made. The disciples have this very idea. It's just a part of the fiber and fabric of of the way that they understood the way that reality works. And so they find a guy that's blind and, and they know that he's blind for some reason and they can only conceive of two possible reasons. Either he sinned or his parents sinned and Jesus' fascinating answer is neither. In, in one word, Jesus takes aim at this simple formulaic way of viewing reality. He says in a single word, reality doesn't always work in these nice, nice and neat and tidy ways where the good people are prosperous in all their financial ventures and, and their spouses never die prematurely and their kids are never killed in, in, uh, by accidents and, and they don't get cancer. The tests always come back negative. Jesus is like, no, no, it doesn't work like that. We too, I believe, like Asaph and the disciples in Job, are tempted to put reality into really simple boxes. I'm going to suggest today that there is such a thing as holy doubt. Holy doubt. Let's continue. This frustration with God, this this complaint against God is found in many ways in Scripture, but perhaps more than any other way, it's found in the phrase, how long? How long is a phrase that emerges again and again and again in the writings of Scripture and in particular in the Psalms? Just get a feel for the angst of these passages, the frustration of these passages, the confusion, even the anger of these passages. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? This is why I say you have full permission to be confused and even to be upset and to have doubt and to express those doubts. God is big enough. You're not going to edge him off of his throne. You're not going to knock him off of his throne when you say, this completely sucks. And I don't understand why this is happening to me. How long will this go on? God can handle it. 
He's big enough. Your pastor might not be able to handle it. Your spouse might not be able to handle it, but God can take it. You can ask God, how long? Psalm 82, verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That is a pointed question. If God enshrines pointed critiques of his governance like this in Scripture, nothing you can say is going to upset him. He knows. Just be open, be honest, be real. Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Psalm 74, verses 9 and 10. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? And over the last few Sabbaths, Pastor Joel has taken you through a series titled, When God Stands Up. And he's been doing that in the context of Daniel 8 and 9. The great prophecy of Daniel 9, the 70-week prophecy, well, of course, the birth of the 70-week prophecy is this question right here in Daniel 8, 13. How long, uh, Daniel overhears two angelic beings talking, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of Yahweh's people. He overhears two angels. This isn't just Asaph, and this isn't just Job, and... How long? Even angels say, hey, what's going on? How long? I mean, for real, God. You're you're supposed to be the God of all the earth. You're supposed to be just. You're supposed to see all. How long? How long? How long? How long? Psalm 73, verses 4 to 12. Back to our psalm psalm here, and we, we find here, we'll sort of summarize Asaph's perception of the wicked. Okay, his perception of the wicked, because then he moves from perception to actual, but there's a transition between the two, and we'll get there in just a moment. This is Asaph's perception of the wicked. This is found in verses 4 to 12. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Yet another textual intimation that something is wrong with his body, some sickness, some ailment. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Asaph's complaint is that people complain against God and there appears to be no consequence. There appears to be no repercussion. People can just say whatever they want and their bodies are healthy and their imaginations can go from perverted thing to perverted thing. I wonder here, and and I'm a little nervous to do this, but I just wonder if anybody here remembers back to our seven-part series on the book of Jonah. Does anybody remember what that series was titled? Very good. I heard somebody say it. In the belly of a bish. And you might remember that, that Jonah, uh, when he was swallowed by the, the great fish, he went down and he prayed that prayer. He prayed that amazing prayer, that beautiful prayer. We, we walked through that in, in great detail. But the last line of Jonah's prayer that he prayed from the belly of the great fish was really a summary of what the whole book of Jonah is about. You might remember this. I wonder if anybody here remembers, what was that single phrase that Jonah prayed from the belly of the great fish that encapsulates the whole thing that the entire book of Jonah is about? In fact, it's really the whole thing that Scripture is about. Does anybody remember? I thought you might. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. As Jonah prays this prayer, the the last phrase that he utters from the belly of the great fish is, salvation belongs to Yahweh. This is what Asaph believes. This is what Job believes. This is what I believe. This is what the disciples believe. And yet, 
in fairness, and in just unbiased observation, it doesn't always look that way. It does not always look that way. I mentioned in the introduction there that I went to see uh, Free Solo, the film about Alex Honnold, twice. And uh, I've been a huge fan of Alex Honnold for a long time. So I started reading his book, Alone on the Wall. And uh, I'm only about two-thirds of the way through. Um, read this on the plane instead of watching some silly movie that I would regret. Um, Honnold is an avowed atheist. And so I've, I've taken to... It's fascinating the little internal contradictions in this. I've taken to dog-earing all of the pages where I detect contradictions. Right now, I'm not doing this to be critical of Alex. I have the utmost respect for him and the work that he does, and he's an amazing rock climber and a fascinating human being. But by his own identification, he says, I'm an atheist, I'm an avowed atheist. He even describes in one section here of going through a, a, a significant God-hating phase, reading the works of Hitchens and Harris and Dawkins and others, hating God. But then fascinating things happen. Again and again, things will come up where he will say, thank God, thank God that, thank God that, and in reading about Honnold's atheism, an, a picture has emerged that is unsurprising because it's a picture that I've encountered dozens of times. Alex Honnold is not an atheist regarding the true God that is represented in Scripture. I'm persuaded he's never even had exposure to the true God that is represented in Scripture. He tells us in little bite-sized pieces and chunks in the book the God that he is atheistic about, the God that he doesn't believe in. Well, I got good news for you, Alex. I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in as well. The picture and the portrait and the caric caricature or character that he paints of this God is a God that doesn't deserve to be believed in. And Alex, like many others who are thinking people, rationally minded people, observant people, they look at the kind of formulaic ways that good Christian people like ourselves and, and the way that we paint the world, and, and they say, but that's, not, that's, not, that's not the way it looks. Because it kind of looks like the world is in total upheaval. It looks like people are starving to death. It looks like people are being killed for no greater reason than the caprice of some dictator. I get Alex's frustration. I, I can even understand and resonate with the intellectual motivations for his atheism. I think any Christian who can't see why people doubt is just not being honest with themselves intellectually. They're not facing the world that Job faced and that Asaph faced and that others in the Psalms faced where they're saying, God, if you are who you say you are and, and this world is what you say it is and we are who you say you are, then what gives? Why, why fill in the blank? Why that? Why me? Why this way? Why now? And yet, right in the heartbeat of Scripture is this consistent, insistent refrain, salvation belongs to Yahweh. God is deliverer. God is in charge. God is good. Can somebody say amen? Easy to say amen. Not always easy to believe it. Faith, by definition, is prone to doubt. So I'm going to say it again. It's okay to ask hard questions. It's okay to not know all the answers. It's okay to be confused and even to be angry at times. You can even get to the place, and I'm wondering, and I won't make you raise your hands. In fact, I'm not wondering. I'm certain that there would be a significant number of people in this room who have actually had the autobiographical experience of Asaph when Asaph says, man, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. Probably
certainly many people in this room could say, there have been times when I thought, what am I doing this whole Christian thing for? Because it kind of doesn't seem to work as nicely and as neatly and as easily as I want it to work. It would be easier just to go and live a godless life and believe that there's no purpose to life and there's no consequence because it's hard to affirm the goodness of God in the face of the rampant evil that we see around us today. And Asaph, who I remind you is a Levitical priest, he says, man, I'm doing all of this for nothing. I was tempted to think it was all for naught, all of those services, all of those rites, all of those sacrifices, all of those rituals, all of that church attendance, all of that worship, all of those tithes. In vain, he says. Surely in vain I have done all of this. This sounds very much like the last book of the Old Testament where you have this sort of Asaphian complaint that that is a larger complaint taken on by all of Israel. One of the seven critiques that God raises against Israel. He says, you have said, this is God saying to Israel, you have said, I've heard you say it. I've heard you say it. And even if you've not said it out loud, maybe you didn't have the, the, the guts to say it. You didn't have the, 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 the ability to say it or the strength to say it or the courage to say it out loud. You've said it in your heart. Why be a Seventh-day Adventist anyway? Why be a Christian anyway? Why be a believer anyway? God says, I've heard that. I've heard that. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out all these requirements? And going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. God's like, I've seen you say these things. Again, I'm not threatened by them. I know you have felt that way. I know that you have often wondered why things happen in the certain way that they happen. Why did that person die? Why did I have a cancer test come back positive? Why is the tumor in my brain inoperable? And why am I only given a year or less to live? Asaph was tempted to throw in the towel and join the worldly in their godless pursuits. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'll just ask you to raise your hearts. Who here has not been similarly tempted to say, you know what? Peace out. The frustration is too big. The burden is too big. The confusion is too big. There have been times, there have been moments of weakness. And I'm going to try and suggest to you today, you might be tempted to regard those as moments of great weakness because you had doubt. You didn't have absolute certainty about everything that was happening in the world. You, You couldn't just easily explain how God allows a man to walk into a synagogue and gun down a dozen people. And so you're tempted to give up faith. Now... No, I'm going to suggest today that there's, there's a kind of doubt that's holy. There's a kind of doubt that it's okay to have. There's a kind of doubt that should be encouraged even. From the front, I'm trying to do that this morning. Back to Psalm 73, Asaph writes, But as for me, and he's very autobiographically, very vulnerable, very honest. He says, man, I'm going to tell you guys the truth. Because obviously he's writing this retrospectively. He's writing this after the events, but he's being very honest about the vulnerability and the frustration that he felt. And he tells us, he doesn't have like this sort of Christian veneer, this happy Sabbath veneer, this put on the right clothes and wear the right outfit and pretend like everything's fine veneer. He just says it. He says, I got to be honest with you. As for me, when I thought about this stuff, when, when my body was racked with illness and sickness and pain, my feet almost slipped. I almost threw in the towel. I nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I love the honesty, the vulnerability and the transparency here. He's like, man, I almost gave it up. He goes on to tell us though, if I had done that, if I had spoken out like that, particularly as a Levitical priest, I would have betrayed your children 
And I love this idea, and I want you to follow me here on just a slight little detour, a left-hand detour here. Yes, everybody could assent to this. Sometimes we need the faith and the testimony of others to carry us through our doubts and our struggles. Can somebody say amen? You're doubting, they're strong. You're weak, they're strong. We need that. We need that. I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to make a more radical suggestion. I'm going to suggest not only do we need the strength and the testimony and the story and the faith of others, I'm going to suggest that, that sometimes we actually need the doubts of others. How so? How could, how could somebody else's doubts, how could somebody else's frustrations, how could somebody else's struggles in any way benefit me? Notice this. We need each other. We need each other's faith, yes, but we also need each other's doubts and struggles. And here's why. If you're not open and honest and vulnerable about your own struggles, nobody else will be either. And if you can't testify that, like Asaph, your feet almost slipped and you almost gave, gave up, you almost threw in the towel, you, you envied the wicked. Because Asaph's testimony goes on that he recovered from that doubt. He recovered from that confusion. He recovered. But if, but if we never have any struggles and we never have any doubts and we never have any frustrations and we're not open and honest and vulnerable about them, well, then we're all going to go on pretending that everything's fine when we know it's not fine in our own experience and we know that everybody else is not fine, but we'll just pretend like... Like everything's fine. No, not only do I need your faith in times of my weakness, not only do I need your strength in times of my doubt, I need your doubts. Because I need to see in flesh and blood somebody who has struggled, somebody who has wrestled, somebody who has looked death in the eye, looked divorce in the eye, looked financial ruin in the eye, and come out the other side as Asaph does, praising God. We need each other's honesty and openness and vulnerability. Oh, Asaph is very honest with us here. When I tried to understand all of this, the apparent prosperity of the wicked, it troubled me deeply. And then you have this key phrase. In fact, this single word, the word till, is very much the fulcrum. It is the turning point of the whole psalm. It, it all comes down to till. The man, this was hard for me to bear, and this was hard for me to watch, and this was hard for me to look at, my body racked with pain, and all the wicked around me seemingly prospering and, and, you know, scoffing in the face of God. He said, man, I almost threw in the towel. It troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Something happened in that till moment. Something tipped. Something turned. Something shifted when Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. He entered the sanctuary plagued by doubts, but he came out singing for joy. Which, of course, raises the question. You know, we want to see the before and after picture. This is the Instagram generation. We want to see the before 100 days with Pastor Ray and the after 100 days with Pastor Ray. We want to see the before intermittent fasting and the after intermittent fasting. Before the sugar-free and the after sugar-free. We would say, hey, what did you do? What was the change? Show me the before and after photo. Asaph says, man, everything looked like this until I went into the sanctuary and I came out not plagued by doubts and confusion, but singing praises to God. And we say, what happened? What brought about this transition? Oh, I tell you, he, 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 he tells us. But the thing is, is that it's not really a what. It's not a what that he encounters. It's a who that he encounters. He cries out in Psalm 73, right at the close of the psalm, he's now come full circle. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. That's what happened in the sanctuary. 
The sanctuary is where God dwelt. He dwelt in the sanctuary, and then, of course, in the holy. And then to be most proximate to God was in the most holy place. And so it wasn't just a thing. It wasn't just a rite. It wasn't just a ritual. The act of going into the sanctuary brought me near to God. It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Some personal transaction happened when Asaph went into the sanctuary. The sanctuary was not so much a what he saw that happened. It was a who that he encountered. And the who that he encountered was Yahweh. In his marvelous book, a book I read years ago, but picked up again this morning from Hans K. Lorandel, Deliverance in the Psalms, coming close to God, his soul, Asaph's soul, experienced a peace it seemed to have never known before. Here he began to discern the larger plan of God for man. From God, he received a totally new perspective on life. What's the new perspective, Asaph? What happened in that sanctuary? He began to see things in the light of eternity. Ah! Before, he had a temporal view. They're prospering. Their business ventures are prospering. They don't have Parkinson's disease. Their body's not withering. But something about the sanctuary brought Asaph into a larger, more panoramic perspective. Not just a snapshot. Not even just a a wide-angle shot, but a panorama. And what he saw in the sanctuary was the eternality of God and the, the temporality of the things of the earth. He says, man, there's nothing on earth that I want anymore. He began to see things in the light of eternity. Suddenly, the reality of final judgment struck home with a new realism. Perhaps he saw a sacrifice in the smoke of the fatty smoke of the sacrifice ascending to heaven. And he discerned the permanence of the death and the finality of the death of the wicked. Something about his interaction with God in the sanctuary reminded him of the eternality of God. The sanctuary revealed what was truly permanent and what was merely passing. Before, when he spoke about the prosperity of the wicked, he took a very facile view, a very cursory view of the situation, and it looked like everything was fine, but when he went into the sanctuary, God said, these are things that are permanent and these are things that are passing, and he was like, of course, But of course, God is taking the panoramic view, not the telephoto view. There's a bigger picture here. Asaph's change of perspective regarding permanence and impermanence manifests itself immediately in his psalm. Look at this, Psalm 73, verses 8 to 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. Now, notice the transition. Everything they do prospers and their imaginations are uninterrupted and everything they touch turns to gold. And then notice, as soon as he goes into the sanctuary and the tilting of the till, he comes out of the sanctuary singing the praises of God and notice the shift from permanence and stability to impermanence and, and uh, uh, the, the, the slipperiness. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They are like a dream when someone awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as mere fantasies. The seeming permanence and the seeming prosperity of the wicked, he says, I went into the sanctuary and I saw that all of that goes up in smoke. All of that doesn't count for anything. And, and the, the cancer that I have, the tumor that I have, the financial disaster that I have, the divorce that I have, the death of my children I have, all of this is, this is not the real thing. This is not a permanent thing. This is a, this is a momentary thing. God takes all of the big panorama of history into the wider view. Again, from La Rondelle, self-confident, boasting people are not walking on solid ground. Their happiness is unstable, and I like this, and unreal. Because it is based on creation and not on the creator. Can somebody say amen? 
Oh, I like that. Where does your stability come from? Where does your happiness come from? Where does your solidity come from? Does it come from the creation or from the creator? If it comes from the creation, like Asaph and Job and others, you will be inclined to perhaps even doubt and to wonder what God is doing. But God takes a bigger, broader perspective. He sees that this world is passing away. There is no consecration to the Lord. Celestial joy is a state of the heart and is rooted in God. The things of earth cannot satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. Say it with me. The things of earth cannot satisfy the deeper longings of the soul. Say it again. The things of earth cannot satisfy the deeper longings of the soul. Repeat it like a mantra until you believe it. Asaph began to see the triviality and the flimsiness of materialism. With prophetic certainty, he now announces the end of the superficial pleasure seekers in Israel. And as if standing at their funeral, Asaph bewails, how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. It's fascinating. On my trip, as a part of my trip, I had the privilege of visiting with some very wealthy people, some extraordinarily wealthy people. And in the course of the conversation that I was having with these people that have done extremely well for themselves financially, they told me something that I had heard before and, and, and they reestablished, they, they just made more permanent in my mind. They, they told the story of how somebody had come and given a, a speech to them, to, to a group, they're a part of a large group of extremely wealthy people, and this person had come in and had presented the data the various data about how happiness and wealth correlates, how they correlate together. And uh, basically all of the studies confirm that there's a threshold, and the threshold in the United States and equivalent in other countries is about 75,000 U.S. dollars. There is, in fact, a correlation, a direct correlation between money and happiness, but after you get to 75,000 U.S., the correlation ceases, and you can double it to 150, or you can quadruple it to 300, and you get no increase in happiness. Jim Carrey, not long ago, the uh, famous comedian and movie star, recently said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous for a day just to see that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Even if you could have all of the things that you think you want, that, that new boat and that new car or that new raise, there is a threshold beyond which, and I realize that some of you in this room are not above that threshold, and, and you need to, to be aware that, that there are certain realities when you are worried about paying the bills and you're worried about is there enough food, and these are realities that much of the world lives in. In fact, the vast majority of the world lives in these realities. But if you're not living in that reality today, if you have an annual household income of above $75,000 between you and your wife, U.S. equivalent, you don't get more happiness with more money. It tables off. And it's fascinating. You know, it's one thing for me to say that because I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody who's particularly wealthy. But when you're talking to people who have been at various stages of the sort of, you know, economic strata, and they say, we got news for you. There's no increase in happiness. Study after study after study confirms that you get to a certain threshold, and that threshold is where you have basic things like you don't have to worry about bills, you can pay for a house, you can take vacation, vacations occasionally, and that's it. When you get there, you have basically maxed out human happiness as relates to, to financial freedom, which kind of puts things in perspective then. Why kill yourself for that 150? Why kill yourself for the 300? Why kill yourself for the half a million if the return on your investment is no greater? Oh, it does sort of contextualize things, doesn't it? Psalm 73, verses 23 to 26. Asaph says, I am always with you. 
You hold me by my right hand. Notice that. You hold me. Not I hold you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Notice the permanence here. Glory, always. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And earth has nothing that I, that I desire beside you. This is Asaph coming to the close of his psalm. My flesh and my heart may fail. Another allusion to the fact that it could have been a bodily disease. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That phrase there, that phrase, but God, is a key phrase. I've actually toyed at times with preaching a whole series on the but gods of Scripture because there are several fascinating but gods where when, when this phrase shows up, it's a total turn. Everything that was just whoop, is completely instantaneously and irrevocably reversed. Let me just give you one instance. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God... Everything turns on that phrase. But God, the very phrase that Asaph uses, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can somebody say amen? You need what Asaph needed. You need a but God. You need a clause in your life that says, yes, the cancer test came back positive, and yes, I'm facing, facing difficulty in my marriage, and yes, uh, I don't have you know, the financial goals that I wish I had, and yes, whatever the, 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 the struggle, the challenge, the frustration, the difficulty that you have faced, are facing, or will face, you just need to drop a but God in the middle of it. You need to go to the sanctuary like Asaph went to the sanctuary and get your, get your sense of reality calibrated, not to temporality, but to eternality, and drop that great big but God right in the middle of your reality and you like Asaph will go from the sanctuary singing the praises of God. In fact, when he leaves, he says, I will tell of your great good works. La Rondelle says the believer needs to encounter the living God. What's that word? Personally. We need to encounter personally. Man has too weak a hand to hold on to God, but God's hand is strong and never Let's go. Somebody say amen. In Christ, we are eternally safe in the hand of God. Because Asaph doesn't say, I'm holding on to you. It's like the old gospel song says, I'm not holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to me. I went into the sanctuary with doubts, but I came out with confidence. I am always with me, with you. You will take me to glory. You hold me by my right hand. God is the strength of my heart. Notice that. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In his work, The Seven Penitential Psalms, Martin Luther writes these amazingly poetic and beautiful words. God accepts only the forsaken. He cures only the sick. He gives sight only to the blind. He restores life only to the dead. He sanctifies only the sinners and gives wisdom only to the unwise fools. In short, God has mercy only on those who are wretched. He gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can become God's material and God's purposes cannot be fulfilled filled in him. He remains in his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, and false, and painted saint of himself. That is to say, he's a hypocrite. Asaph is not a hypocrite. He's real. He's open. He's honest. I had doubts. I had anger. I had frustrations. And he just lays his frustrations out on the table. I close with this amazing statement from the pen of Ellen White, a book titled Ministry of Healing. Nothing is apparently more helpless. That was Asaph, apparently helpless. 
That is me sometimes, apparently helpless. When I look at my aging father and my uncle that has passed, and, and when I see the advancing Parkinson's disease in my own lives, and when I open up CNN.com and see a man has senselessly killed people in a Jewish synagogue, I too feel weak, and, and I look at the world, and I think, God, what's going on here? And, and yet here it is, nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies totally on the merits of the Savior by prayer, by study of his word. Passages like Psalm 73, which is what we've done this morning, by faith in God's abiding presence, the weakest of human beings may live in contact with the living Christ and he will hold them by a hand that will never let them go. It is okay to doubt. It is okay to struggle. It is okay to wonder. It is okay even on occasion to shake your fist at God. Beloved, not only is faith holy, not only is belief holy, not only is obedience holy, not only is righteousness holy, but even doubt can be holy when doubt is embraced as the authentic, real thing that it is, as a reflection of the crazy, weird, scary world that we live in. And when we come with our doubts and our frustrations and our anger to God, He receives them, He accepts them, and He brings us to Himself. He brings us into the sanctuary, and we can go in with Asaph and say, man, my whole world was turned upside down until I went into the sanctuary. And when I came out, my view was expanded to a larger panorama. And I saw not temporality. I saw eternality. I saw not impermanence. I saw permanence. And I will be with God forever because I'm not holding on to him. He's holding on to me. You're not saved by your amazing, strong faith. You're saved by God's amazing, strong faith faithfulness. Believe, believe, believe. God is big enough, strong enough, and good enough to save even doubters like you and me and Asaph. Father in heaven, we are in need of a God who is big enough to bear our cries, to bear our hurts, to bear our anger, to bear our discomfort with the world around us. Father, we sometimes pretend like we know everything and why it happened and why it happened to them. And Father, we know nothing as we ought to. Father, we stand humbled and we stand naked before your awesomeness, before your sovereignty, and before your wisdom. Father, forgive us where we have tried to divide the world nicely and neatly into a simple formula. And Lord, our formula has been overturned by the complexity and the evil of the world that we see today. Lord, we have had, many of us, an Asaphian experience where we have been tempted to throw in the towel. We have been tempted to give it up and say, in vain have I kept his commands and requirements. Lord, we come today with all of our faults, all of our foibles, all of our doubts, all of our struggles and frustrations, and even our anger, and we lay it at your feet. Father, take us into the sanctuary where we will see the big panoramic picture, the permanence of you and your goodness and your plan in the impermanence of this world and of its apparent prosperity. Father, orient us to the things that are real and not the things that are false to the things that are substantive and not the things that are transient. Orient us, O oh God, to you. And when our hand is weak and we can hold no longer, 
May you hold on to us and see us through, for you are our portion forever in glory. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen and amen and amen.